I think of the little boy that around Christmas time really, really wanted um, a bicycle for Christmas. And so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he thought, I don't think this is working. This isn't going to get me what I want. So um, he went down to the local church's nativity scene and, and in the dark of night grabbed baby Jesus and took it back to his house and hid it in his closet. And his next prayer was, Lord, I have your son. Do you ever want to see him again? So we can think that prayer somehow obligates God to us. But prayer, just as in any part of our life that we walk with with the Lord, it's an opportunity to worship him by responding to him rightfully in the way that he deserves to be responded to. Same way that we sing his praise. Same reason why we sing his praise. Big surprise, we are in Daniel looking at the supreme rule of God in an ungodly world. In the, at, um, the last verses of chapter 9, you recall from last week that Daniel was praying that God's mercy would be shown to his nation Israel. He knew that God had promised that Israel would be restored from exile when they repented. He had read in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah that that restoration of Israel back to their land, that time for restoration was coming soon. We, re, we read Daniel's prayer and confession of his sins and the sins of his people last week in verses 18 through 19 of Daniel chapter 9. And we read where he, where he speaks to the Lord, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel prayed for the city of Jerusalem, which lay desolate, and the temple of God, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Keep in mind that this was more than just uh, for Daniel's people. This was God's glory that he was concerned for. God's glory and his redemptive plan for the world. Israel and the temple of God were meant to be a place that reached out to the world with the truth. We should keep in mind that the captivity of God's people was a turning point in Israel's history and a turning point that they have not fully recovered from since then. Daniel would have been longing for more than just for his people to return to their homeland. He would have been longing for the day when they lived out the rule. Um, lived out beyond the rule of other nations over them. More than that, he would have longed for when Messiah ruled over Israel in righteousness as their rightful king. He would have, he would have known that God would one day reign over the world when he would set up his eternal throne in Jerusalem, literally present there. Daniel's prayer, if you'll notice here, dealt with God's city, God's sanctuary, and God's people. 
which amounted to God's redemptive plan for the world. God's answer, then, that we find here in verses 20 through 27, deals with his city, his sanctuary, and his people, as well as his plan for the world. That's the connection between Daniel's prayer and God's answer. We move into Daniel's, God's response to Daniel's prayer here in 20 through 23. I want you to, if you look at your notes here, you'll see that we kind of bounce between walking through this narrative and the eternal principles that we draw out of it. Walking through a book like Daniel is different than, say, walking through an epistle from the New Testament or teachings in the Old Testament, is that we are observing as we walk through a story or as we walk through a narrative of what's going on, and truth is interlaced in it. And so we're both moving through that narrative, but at the same time drawing out what we believe to be God's message for us, those eternal principles that were both true then and true now. And so that's why we kind of dip in and out of the story and what it means for us in those principles as we walk through. And I appreciate your patience with our process of doing that. But so we pick up the story, we pick up the narrative here in verses 20 through 23 as we see God's response to Daniel's prayer. It says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, and for the holy hill of my God. Recall last week, that's what everything was about last week. Daniel's prayer of repentance and confession and praying for his people and for um, Jerusalem. It says, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. We see here that Daniel is interrupted in his prayer by the angel Gabriel. Daniel refers to him as being the one who brought to him the interpretation of his previous vision. That vision being Daniel chapter 8, if you remember it being the ram that represents the Medo-Persian Empire and the goat that represented the, the Greek Empire. Remember the goat, it's four horns, and then one of uh, another horn which represented Antiochus Epiphanes and things like that. And, and Gabriel gives him this explanation of that in chapter 8. So it's the same angel. So something that is interesting to note here also is Gabriel's arrival. It says he came in swift flight. This literally means with weariness, as if breathing heavily. Gabriel is winded. Angels don't have attributes, the attributes that belong only to God. For instance, what we observe here, angels don't have God's omnipresence. They're not present everywhere. So what we can assume from this is that Gabriel was somewhere else, and God sent him with a message to Daniel, and, and, he, had, and he came quickly, and he comes breathing heavily, after swift flight. Fascinating to me. He says, also we'll learn more things about that angelic world next week as we read about a celestial combat that takes place between the prince of Persia and the angel Michael. You can read ahead of that 
in chapter 10 this week, if you prefer. So going on in God's response, it says, He made me, speaking of Gabriel, understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, as we step into this and we see, we hear that Gabriel has said, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, that being from God, a message. Angels are messengers. That's what the very definition of their name, Angelos, means, is messenger. This word went out and Gabriel has come to tell Daniel this. And in the midst of this, I want to draw out our first of our principles. But our three principles, if you combine them together, they are what I see right now in February of 2013. If you combine our three principles, what I believe the Lord has laid on me to communicate to you as being Daniel 9, 20 through 27 for harvest. And that is that the church, we, the church is participating during a special time of God's gospel mission in the world. The church is participating during a special time of God's gospel mission in the world. These would break down first into the, our first principle that we gain out of this passage. And that is that God responds to our prayers. We're involved with God. He responds to our prayers. Gabriel explains here that he was sent specifically because Daniel had prayed. He'd been praying and because he was loved by God. This, this idea of being loved by God, speaking of Daniel, means literally that Daniel is a man of God's delight. As those who have received Christ as our Savior, we have received God's love. We are those loved by God as well. In fact, the church has the privilege of being Christ's body, of being Christ's bride. Husbands are told to model their love for their wives after the way that Christ loves his church. I don't know about you, but the fact that our prayers also can, that can, that they can put angels in motion are amazing to me. This week, well, even t next week, we'll even talk about, as I mentioned, the spiritual warfare that we might be participating in as we pray. We have so many opportunities to be involved in what God is doing in people's lives through prayer. This is what I'd like to focus on for a moment here. Jesus taught us to pray for God's work to be furthered in the world. In his main instruction on prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray for the furtherance of God's kingdom on earth. Your kingdom come, he teaches in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's the, to be the focus of our prayer. God, move your forces. God, work here on earth. Do your will here on earth. In Colossians 1, God's glory is prayed to be revealed in the lives of the Colossian believers by Paul 
He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Think of the spiritual growth that would erupt in a person's life with the answer of these prayers. Here, here in Colossians 1, 9-11. You know, in our military, there's times when a soldier is called to do what's called paint the target. That means that they're to aim a laser at something. And this laser is harmless. But they're aiming at something that's far too big or strategic for their small arms, meaning the weapons that they carry, for their small weapons to do anything to it. But they're called to do what's called paint the target. That means that they aim the laser in some larger armament, like a Hellfire missile would be called in. The missile might be launched from an aircraft 50 miles away, but it's going to hit directly and exactly where that laser is pointed on that target. How ridiculous would it be for a soldier that has that mission of painting the target to sit there and be like, it's not doing anything. Nobody's falling down dead. This is useless. You know, and throwing it down and attacking some missile launcher with 20 guys standing around it with his sidearm or something. How ridiculous would that be? You'd say, that's not your purpose. There's something bigger coming. Paint the target. Like that soldier, most of the time we're just called to paint the targets in our life through prayer. How much are you dealing with alone when your mission is to be painting the target and let God deal with it? Part of the harvest way of doing things is prayerful dependence. What would it happen in, in, if your prayers were to put God's work in motion in a significant way? Is it possible that some angels sit idle by because requests have not been made. I want to challenge you to be praying these verses from Colossians for yourself, for your family, for your loved ones, for the people you don't love. Fathers and husbands, I could, I could challenge wives and women in the, here just as much, but fathers and husbands, uncles, aunts, I want to challenge you to be especially lifting up your family in prayer. On the back table, I have um, some prayer lists. How to pray for your children. How to pray for your wife. We should be painting the targets in our lives. Wives, you could probably pick up the how to pray for your wife and convert it into how to pray for your husband. But I want to specifically challenge the husband with that this morning. And the, and the fathers, and the future fathers, the future husbands. What follows in Daniel 9 is what Chuck Swindoll calls the backbone of biblical prophecy. And that's God's message to Daniel as we dip back into the story here 
in verses 24 through 27. This is God's message through Gabriel the angel that he brings. He says, I've now come to share with you the answer, and now he breaks into what that answer is having to do with God's people and city and God's plan for the world. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. We dealt a little bit with this passage a year ago during our Easter season when we talked about the triumphal entry. You might recall that the weeks that are being talked about here are weeks of years. Um, you know, whereas we think in terms of ten, uh, sets of ten, you know, if I were to say seven decades, you'd be like, oh, okay, 70 years. For Daniel and his people, they thought in terms of sets of seven. So they would hear 70 weeks. Oh, okay, 490 years. So 70 weeks equals out to 490 years. Now, get an egghead here for a second. These 490 years are 300, are Jewish calendar years, which are 360-day years. In our calendar of 365 days, they equal out to 483 plus a few days. Okay, so that aside. Notice that the 70 weeks or 490 years, according to the Jewish calendar, have to do with Daniel's people Israel and the city of Jerusalem. This is very important for us to understand. That's why I'll come back to it in the meaning of the message that Gabriel brings and what it has to do with us today. So just moving, we're going to just read through this message and we'll come back and look at it in parts, verse by verse. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So he's getting into the makeup of these 70 weeks. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of, the, of an anointed one, a prince, there shall first be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. If you're thinking, J.D., I'm glad you're preaching these verses this morning. It's a burden to carry. But, you know, I'm excited about these verses. And um, I, I, I want to just give you um, freedom. I'm good with amens. So it's, it's always encouraging to know that other people get excited about, you know, that something excites other people as it does me. Um, so just this forward. So we, did, we come to understand this message from Gabriel first in the revealing of a purpose in verse 24. 
He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. Then he shares six purposes to these 70 weeks. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To build an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Just as the 70 weeks of years are for God to deal with his people Israel, the six purposes that we find here are for that purpose also, dealing with Israel. The six purposes of these 70 weeks are for the abolishment of evil and the establishment of righteousness. These first three purposes deal with sin. The, to, to finish transgression means to bring sin to a conclusion. To put an end to sin communicates the ideal of sealing it up to be dealt with at a later time. To atone for sin means to cover over man's wickedness. We know that the three dealings with Israel's or anyone else's sin, for that matter, is based on the sacrifice of Christ. Daniel is being told that Israel will finally have their sins taken care of at the end of the 490 years. And we know it will be the application of Christ's atoning work on the behalf of those who will believe in him. Now, I'm not saying all of Israel's sin is dealt with, and so all of Israel, you know, it's not this universalist message for it's still for those who have faith in Christ within Israel. So moving here into the second half of the purpose of the 70 weeks of years that are about to be that are about the establishment of Christ's kingdom this second half. He says <clears throat> that Christ's kingdom here speaking of will be establishing righteousness. This speaks of the millennial reign of Christ at the end of the 490 years that Daniel had heard about from the angel Gabriel. It'll be time when righteousness reigns over the earth with Christ on his throne in Israel. He, said, he calls it to, to seal both vision and profit. Now, we think of a message being sealed until it is opened and read. But when it comes to biblical prophecy, it works differently that than that way. The message is considered kept unsealed until it's fulfilled. At the point of its fulfillment, it no longer needs to stand as a notice, and so it is then sealed. All of the visions and the prophecies concerning Israel and the Messiah are being described here as being completed and sealed up by the end of the 70 weeks that they're being described to Daniel. Lastly, having to deal with the establishment of Christ's kingdom, says the anointed, the, to, it's for the purpose of to anoint a most holy place. The anointed one, Jesus Christ, will sit in the temple in Jerusalem, making it a most holy place. Daniel would have been concerned about, learn, after learning in chapter 8, about the coming desolations of Antiochus Epiphanes, that Greek general who would make a mess of Jerusalem prior to the coming of Christ, he would have been concerned about having learned about this in chapter 8. This conclusion of the 490 years that God would be working with Israel must have caused Daniel to be bursting with joy, to know it will end with Christ sitting on his throne the holy place 
will be anointed. God would be faithful and cause Israel to be his light to the world with the Messiah sitting at its capital. God is always at work in his perfect plan for his glory. And it's always good things. It always means good things for those who have the privilege of being a part of it. The chief of those good things is growing closer to and growing more like Jesus. This is a, brings us to our second principle here that God is working to redeem his creation. We'll look today at how we live in a gap of time between the weeks of God's working with Israel as his people. And I'll explain later what I mean by that, but just because I'm not a physical member of Israel, it doesn't mean that I ignore what God is doing on the earth. That's not what this is talking about here. In fact, we the church, followers of Christ, Christians, we are his people right now. And it's, it's to us that Jesus taught and proclaimed in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you know what is the purpose of Harvest Fellowship? It's to be a part of doing exactly this. It's on paper. It's up on the screen every Sunday. You recognize this? Harvest Fellowship exists to exalt God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, establish and edify a caring community of believers, equip believers for effective ministry, and extend the kingdom of God into Montgomery County, the state of Indiana, and throughout the world in which we live. This was the purpose of Harvest Fellowship long before I got here. It's time to rediscover what it is that Harvest should be doing in accomplishing this purpose. As elders, we are uncovering what we believe God wants our church to be about. Much of this is to rediscover what the purpose of Harvest means and what it should look like over the next five years. Don't worry though, the vision of harvest over the next three to five years is not going very far without the insight of the people of harvest. The rest of the people of harvest, I should say. See, I believe the job of leadership is to establish the big picture of what and why we should be doing what we're doing. But it is going to be up to those in the body that get on board with that what and that why to flesh out the how of God's vision for harvest. And I believe that's true to what harvest is about the body doing the work of the ministry. Sadly, local church bodies can miss their purpose of impact in a community that God calls them to. It's sobering enough to think of the fact that we'll each give an account for furthering God's kingdom in Montgomery County. It's even more so to think that a whole body of believers could get off track of their purpose 
I'm not speaking of that of harvest. I'm just saying that that happens. It'd be like an army battalion spending an entire war in the mess hall. We must ignore the siren's call. We must strap ourselves to this principle like the ship's mast and ignore the siren's call that someone else will reach my neighbor for Christ. We've got to ignore the lie that someone else will love the child that I know is being neglected. We've got to ignore the lie that someone else will teach my child about Christ. We've got to ignore the lie that someone else will point my wife and point out to her the fact that God's love and acceptance is what she needs. You can probably notice I'm getting excited about the awakening that I believe that God is bringing to us as a body of harvest. I want to ask you to be praying for me and the rest of the leadership as we seek the Lord's heart with this. But each of us should be seeking for how the Lord desires for us to be a part of redeeming this world. We've got to go back here to the story. Back to Gabriel's message to Daniel about these 70 weeks of years of God working with Israel. He's told him the purpose of the 490 years was to usher in the rule of the Messiah. Now he moves to how these 490 years are divided up. First of all, in verse 25, we see it bring, it, they're divided up beginning with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall first be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. The 70 weeks of years will begin with the going out of the word to rebuild Jerusalem. There were actually four decrees from the rulers of Persia to either rebuild or inhabit Jerusalem with its people. The decree that's being referred to here is that of Artaxerxes and carried out by Nehemiah. It was a decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This is the decree that is being referred to here by Gabriel. This also seems to be the re reason for the division between the first seven weeks or 49 years and the next 62 weeks. It will take Nehemiah only 52 days to have the city wall built, rebuilt around Jerusalem. But it took another 49 or so years to have fully functioning defenses. <clears throat> These fully functioning defenses are the description of Jerusalem during the following 62 weeks of years, where it says, for 62 weeks it shall be built, again, with squares and moat. So that's a, those are a city with fully functioning defenses it's built with for those 62 years. He's recall in Daniel 7, we learned about the trouble that Israel would face under the Greek dynasties. We especially learned about the madman Antiochus Epiphanes. <clears throat> and after him, how Rome would rule crushingly. Israel will certainly live back in their land, but in a troubled time. The greatest tragedy, though... <clears throat> John, you think you can give me a cup of water? Thanks. The greatest tragedy, though, 
the world has ever witnessed lies at the end of these 69 weeks. The people of Israel would reject their Messiah as is foretold in God's message through Gabriel here in verse 26. And we see it as rejection and destruction as a part of God's message to Daniel. It says, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Thank you. And shall have nothing. Meaning that he would be treated as if he was not worthy of life, let alone to be king. This is what John meant when he wrote about Jesus in John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. On the day of his triumphal entry, as we learned about last Easter, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, knowing what would come. This prior to entering the city, prior to the palm branches and the Hosanna, And his final rejection. He he says weepingly over Jerusalem. Would that you even you had known on this day. The things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up barricade around you. And surround you. And hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You might remember from us looking at this a year ago that the very day of Jesus' triumphal entry and rejection, this was after the, the, to the day, the 69 of the 70, the 69 weeks of years to the very day foretold in God's message to Daniel 9, those 483 years from that March 15th, 444 BC, when the decree went out from Cyrus to rebuild the walls. Don't know if I explained that well. He says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Take out that independent clause of of the prince who is to come. And the people shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who are those people? They're the people of the prince who is to come. So here in Daniel 9, we see it confirmed again that he will come from some form of the Roman Empire. In the final week of Daniel's prophecy, explains some of his activity. And that moves us into the redesolation of Antichrist. I had to keep going with the R-E words. So, um, and it is a redesolation. Verse 26 told us, and after the 62 weeks, with the, with the seven weeks that were described prior to that, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Read in verse 27, And he, being the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. 
So the, just drawing out here the timings um, from this passage. You know, I've shared with you before that prior to studying the 70 weeks of Daniel, as far as when the rapture would take place, I was neither a pre-tribulationist, meaning I didn't believe it was going to come before the tribulation. I wasn't a mid-tribulationist, meaning I didn't believe it was going to come in the middle of the tribulation. I wasn't a post-tribulationist, meaning I didn't believe it was going to come after the tribulation. I was what I, would, I called a pan-tribulationist. I believed it was all going to pan out in the end. But now, as I've said, I look to the sky, waiting for what 1 Thessalonians describes as when we will meet him in the air. We established the biblical doctrine of the rapture three weeks ago, but as I mentioned, we're looking right now at the timing of it. Let me just help you understand why I teach that followers of Christ will be raptured before the tribulation, and I hope you pick up a little bit some of the significance of that. So 70 weeks are declared, decreed about your people in your holy city. We've established that the 70 weeks of years are for God to work with Israel as his people. We've established also that Israel rejected Jesus, the anointed one, after the end of seven weeks plus 62 weeks, that an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's 69 weeks, leaving one week. For what? For God to deal with his people Israel, exclusively. So he moves on, describing the seven years of the reign of the Antichrist, that he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. The 70th of the 70 weeks of Daniel. We've established that the seven years of the reign of the Antichrist, or the seven years of tribulation, is the final week of Daniel 7. These weeks are decreed about God and who? The nation Israel. I know we've covered this before, but I'm sharing with you where my confidence comes from here. Daniel's 70 weeks have a gap in their dealings with Israel. The, the Antichrist is not here. At least he has not been revealed. He has not made a treaty with Israel. He has not brought that on, that last week has not begun. The 69 weeks have taken place, ending with J Jesus being rejected as the Messiah. The last week has not started. There's a gap there that we live in. And the gap of the 70 weeks of Daniel is the time that we are living in, we know as the church age. Thus the one week when God picks up again with Israel and his people is the time after the rapture of the church because God's present people are taken away so that he can deal with Israel again because those 70 weeks are for him to deal with his people Israel. So that leads me to the third principle here, that God is going to rapture his Christ followers. We've talked about Daniel 2.21 as being the theme verse of Daniel for us. That he changes times and seasons. 
He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God changes times and seasons. He even changes the people that he's working with. And thank goodness that we, that wild olive branch that have been grafted in to that relationship with God, he's faithful to that relationship that he has with us. He does not plan to cut us off, but to take us to be with him so that he can get back to his people, Israel. And that will be a change of the times and of the seasons. I'm completely convinced that our season of being his people on earth will come to a close at any moment. So I have two questions for you. Have you made sure that you have a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ while you can? Because at any moment, that time is up. Second, Will we be on gospel mission for the time that we've been given? As a body, will we be on mission with the gospel for the time that we've been given? 